Hello and welcome to episode 364 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I'm Andrew Brokus. It is just me today. Uh, it is going to be a shorter episode. Uh, obviously, you heard we don't have the intro music and whatnot. Um, I'm just kind of putting this out because I know that uh, I haven't had a lot on here recently. Although I will say um, the the most recent episode that was up with Dara O'Carney is a great one. I think anyone who likes this show for any reason is going to enjoy that episode. Um, you know, Dara's a great guest for those of you who just like the, the interview side of things. Uh, he's an excellent raconteur. Uh, but also, if you're into the, the strategy side of things, this is one of our most strategy-packed episodes. Um, it is about tournament strategy. It's about Dar's new book on uh, ICM and, and Endgame of tournaments. But I think it's some of the best... Uh, well, the podcast is some of the best free content you'll find anywhere on ICM uh, and, and, and you know late-game strategy. And then the book is some of the best content, period, that you'll find anywhere. So I highly recommend both that interview and that book. But um, yeah, I, I am working to get this back on track a little bit. I do have some interviews lined up and, and some other ideas for the show that I'm excited to share with you soon. Uh, in the meantime, I just wanted to put something up uh, so that it wasn't silent on here for, for so long to let you all know that I haven't forgotten about you. And the thing that I want to talk about today is the math that's in poker. Um, but not, you know, when we hear math, we think of like equations and algebra and numbers. And uh, I think really what you need for poker, I mean, I guess there's there's a little bit of that. But, you know, it's not really that you have to have this really precise uh, knowledge of, well, if I have nine outs twice, you know, that's not actually 36% equity, it's 35.27%, or, um, you know, being able to, to estimate your hand's equity down to two decimal places, or think about uh, you know, betting versus, uh, value betting versus bluffing frequencies, and, and get that really precise. Um, you're not going to have that level of precision while you're playing. Uh, maybe if you're playing like super high rollers, that ends up being important. But for the most part, it's not that you need to understand. It's not that you actually need to do a lot of math, but you do need to understand that this is a mathematical game and you need to be able to reason mathematically. You need to understand that there is a relationship between value betting frequency and bluffing frequency and between bet size and pot size and between bet size and pot size and calling frequency and you, know, you do need to understand that there is a relationship between these things uh, and even more than that i think you need to understand deductive logic you need to understand the process of starting with a lot of possibilities and slowly and methodically eliminating them, or probably more accurate in, in the case of poker, considering at least which of those, uh, or how those become less likely as new information is revealed. And that's really the part that I wanna talk about now, because obviously there have been books written on the mathematics of poker, including a book called The Mathematics of Poker. <laughs> um, also a book called Play Optimal Poker, if uh, you're interested in that. Sorry, gang, real important phone call there. It was about my extended warranty. Um, 
Yeah, so I mean, there there have been books written about uh, certain certain kinds of math and how they manifest themselves in poker. I don't think as much has been written or said about um, the role that that logic plays in poker. And I had not really drawn this distinction explicitly, but a lot of you know I I studied philosophy in college. Um, Nate actually has a, a PhD in philosophy. We've had a number of uh, you know, students of philosophy on this show over the years. Uh, and it may not seem like, you know, the philosophy is the most obvious um, entree into poker. Uh, and I don't know that, that it is, but um, the the logic side of things, um, logic is actually a, a big part of philosophy. And um, I do think that logic plays a really big role in poker. And I mean logic in, in, a, in a pretty formal sense. Like we often use the term illogical to just kind of mean nonsensical or something. But I really mean logic in, in a pretty strict sense of the word where i mean hand reading is really where this this manifests most commonly uh, and and the process and some of you have heard me talk about this before the way that i encourage you to think about hand reading which really could probably better be called range reading because the goal is not to determine your opponent's exact hand we're not trying to do fail home with white magic for the most part or the dan on the ground you you know call the exact cards the player has it's a neat parlor trick when you can pull it off but usually you can't and i think that frustrates people with hand reading sometimes because they think well my opponents are so loose uh, how can i ever put them on a hand when they're going to call with all kinds of garbage pre-flop and and the goal is not to put them on a hand um, the goal is to take in the information that you have about their hand and then make the best decisions that you can with that information, which requires you to keep open multiple possibilities in your mind at once. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. You know, people want to just make a decision and say, okay, I think he has this, or I want to focus on, on this. Uh, and, and often that ends up being the wrong thing, but um, there's not there's not really a right thing. Like you have to consider a lot of possibilities for hands that your opponent might have. So I think too commonly, you know, people just see a flush draw and they think, well, there's a flush draw on the board, so I have to bet. Uh, and, and they're not even exactly putting their opponent on a flush draw, but they effectively are. I mean, they're not really considering all of the hands that the opponent might have, right? They're just sort of focusing on, in, on that one thing threat and and uh, i think a lot of people make their decisions that way whether it's a flush draw or something else um they they just tend to be really motivated by a single possibility um you know what if i what what if i bet when i i have the nuts but what if i bet and my opponent folds you know or um what if i don't bet and my opponent has a flush draw i think people tend to focus in on, on one possibility rather than trying to hold open um the you know that the, there are, there are multiple things your opponent might have and you have to consider all of them uh, and and how likely they are relative to each other so the process that that i suggest for this is that you try to get a picture in your head of what your opponent's range looks like uh ba i mean initially based on the preflop action and then you do this immediately so you should be constantly updating your picture of your opponent's range every time you get new information. And I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about what I mean by new information. But the first time this happens is when your opponent acts pre-flop. That's the first time you have an opportunity to narrow down the hands that your opponent might have. So before your opponent has acted, 
we're going to ignore for now the possibility that, you know, maybe maybe she blinked when she looked at her cards. I mean, sometimes there's like physical. That's another source of information is, you know, your opponent's behavior, or their physical tells. It's another source of information about their hand. Um, I'm going to set that aside for the moment. So maybe you're playing online or something. You know, the you don't have any information about your opponent's hand before they've acted. Right. It's, it's easy to know their range before they've acted. Their range is is any two cards except the two that you're holding. Um, so, you know, exactly what their range looks like before they've acted. Once they act, they are that's that's your first piece of information. Um, if your opponent folds, I mean that is information, but you don't really care anymore. <laughs> like once those cards are folded, it, you're not you're not too concerned about what those were. Um, if your opponent does anything other than fold, then you are concerned. I mean, assuming you're in the hand, then you are concerned about what that player might have and what their range looks like, and you know based on the position that they're in and the action that they took and maybe their stack size and maybe who else is in the hand and maybe any specific reads you have on the players, um, you know what kinds of hands are more or less likely. I think sometimes people get hung up on, um, on, on wanting to know for sure. And say, well, you know, it's hard to say because I play with people who just call with aces sometimes. Or they just call with ace-king. How am I supposed to hand-read them when sometimes they just call with ace-king? How am I supposed to hand-read them when sometimes they call with 9-5 suited? Um, you're not going to know for sure. And I think you just need to let go of being sure. Poker is not a game of sure. It's not a game of, of being certain. And I think people get themselves into a lot of trouble when they try to collapse it into a game of certainty. When they want to pretend that they're sure that their opponent has such and such. I hear this a lot. You know, people will tell me, um, I was sure he had a flush draw and I bet really big, but he called anyway. And sure enough, he did have a flush. I was right. He did have a flush draw. I, I said to somebody recently, um, this, a lot of you have probably encountered this example in like a you know, probability, maybe in like grade school, like studying probability. You know, imagine you have a drawer full of socks and you say, uh, every sock in this drawer is blue. And you pull out a sock and it's blue. Does that mean you were right? Was your claim that every sock in the drawer is blue true? Just because you happened to pull out a blue sock this time? I mean, I guess it increases the likelihood of it being true. It doesn't It doesn't rule out. Like if you pulled out a red sock, we would know your, your, your statement was false. Pulling out a blue sock doesn't really prove it one way or the other. So just because your opponent happened to have the flush draw this time still doesn't mean that you knew he had a flush draw. So I think too often people just try to collapse things to, to certainty. Um, but you do get, things do become more and less likely. I mean, I, I think that, that you don't want to also just throw up your hands and say, well, I can't possibly know what he has, so I'm not even going to bother trying. You know, I, I, I can't figure out what these people have. I, I, I can't be sure. There's too many possibilities. Um, it may feel overwhelming. And I think that, well, I mean, that's just one of the skills of poker. Um, it is difficult. Uh, it is something that you can learn. And there are rewards for learning it. If you put in the work, um, precisely because it's work, not everyone is going to do it. If you put in the work to learn how to do this process and to get more comfortable using deductive logic, it's going to be an advantage that you have over opponents who don't put in that same work. Or it's going to put you in equal footing with other opponents who are also putting in that work. Rather than you being at a disadvantage because you're just throwing up your hands and saying, like, I, I, I can't figure out what anyone else has. I'm just going to play my own cards. You know, that that's a recipe for disaster. So when your opponent acts, we'll start with preflop. When they call, 
just like in any other situation, a call is a condensing action. Condenses their range. The very strongest hands become less likely because your opponent has, there are good reasons why your opponent would want to re-raise if he or she had an extremely strong hand. Now, you know, people like to be deceptive and, you know, there's a chance that they're just calling with a strong hand, but most people re-raise strong hands most of the time. So a call does make the very strongest hands less likely. It also makes the very weakest hands unlikely. And yeah, I mean, it's happened to all of us that somebody calls with do seven offsuit. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's less likely because they've called. Some hands are going to be squarely in their calling range. Some hands you're going to think, you know, they're never going to have this or they're almost never going to have this. It's extremely unlikely that they have this. Um, I once, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine who is sort of notorious for, um, for being unlucky in, in, in life as well as in poker, just kind of always getting, getting shit on by the universe, uh, played a hand. This is when I was playing in uh, Lucky Chances outside of San Francisco. He played a hand where he raised, and this just extremely nitty player, just like unapologetically nitty, would sit at the table and do crossword puzzles and would, would kind of not play games unless uh, one or two particular fish were in the game and then would sort of really obnoxiously like run over and get in the game, would quit as soon as the fish did. Just like everything that you could imagine about a, a kind of a, a, a player who's really bad for the game. All right, th this guy um, calls my friend's race, and the flop ends up coming down deuce deuce queen i think it was my my friend had ace queen um so he ends up like uh and the, the board runs out really dry you know it's queen deuce deuce eight four or something like that my friend just goes you know bet bet shove with the ace queen and this this absurdly tight player this this player who just like you know it plays you know one hand an hour or whatever just just shows do seven offsuit like for some reason he just called a raise with do seven offsuit even though he hadn't played a hand like this was the one right after, after folding and doing a crossword puzzle for two hours he decided he looks at do seven offsuit and he just decides like this is the time i'm gonna play it and then you know ends up ends up making trips and, and winning a stack against uh friends top pair top kicker um so you know it, it happens it's not about being short people do show up with uh, unexpected hands sometimes. Nonetheless, when you get called, you can and should start to narrow down the possibilities. You think about this, I, I, I literally envision this sometimes as just like a bubble above my opponent's head. And this bubble shows all of the hands that they might have. So before they've acted, that bubble is really large. That bubble is just the, the 13 by 13 grid of, of all the possible hands. And then as soon as they call, based on their position, whatever else I know about them, I'm, you know, I, a lot of those hands are, are, I'm essentially scratching them out. I mean, I'm allowing that there's like an outside chance those hands are there, but effectively I'm assuming they don't have do seven offsuit when they call. I'm assuming they don't have pocket aces when they call. And so now I have a better picture of what this player's hand looks like, what kinds of hands this, this player is likely to have. And I'm thinking about things like what kinds of cards are they going to have more and less often. So if they're entering the pot from early position, they're going to have big cards a lot more often than small cards. If they're defending the big blind in a tournament, they're going to have, you know, suited hands uh, much more frequently than they would in, in other situations. And they're still going to be somewhat weighted towards big cards, but they have a lot more incentive to play small cards. Um, so you know, I'm keeping in mind how 
their the, the preflop action is shaping their range. And then we see a flop. And this is the other source of information you get about your opponent's hand. Uh, the, the two big sources of information are your opponent's actions and then the board cards in games with board cards. So like in, in No Limit or in PLO or in any, any Hold'em game, in Hold'em or, or PLO, uh, this is, these are your main sources of information about your opponent's hand. In other games, there are different sources of information. In, in Triple Draw, your sources of information are your, your opponent's actions and then how many cards they drew and also what, what are the discards that you've seen. And that, that provides you information about your opponent's hand. So there, you know, different games have different um, ways of, of conveying this information. It's one of the skills of learning different games. So this is, this is a hand reading process that's relevant to all games, as long as you think about where your information is coming from. But you see the flop, and now again, this flop is going to make certain kinds of hands more likely for the opponent than others. And I tend to think of this, some of you have seen these videos I have on Tournament Poker Edge about hand reading. Um, I tend to think of hands in three buckets. I know some people talk about them in four buckets. There, there are multiple valid ways of doing this. This is not a law of the poker universe. This is just a, a heuristic or a, kind of a, a brain hack to help you think a little more um, concretely or usefully about possibilities of your opponent's hand. So I tend to think of there are monster hands, extremely strong hands, where your opponent will, their incentive will be to try to play a large pot. They're, they're going to want to put a lot of money in the pot. Their hand is so strong that they like actively want to make the pot larger. What that is, you know, what exactly constitutes a monster hand is going to depend on the stack sizes and the board texture and the positions and lots of things. So it, it's not as simple as saying, well, monster hands means two pair or better. That, that's situational. But I'm thinking in, in terms of these, these buckets. So how likely is it that my opponent has a monster hand based on their preflop holding and how, the, how their preflop range interacts with the flop texture? I'm thinking how likely is it that they have a monster hand? How likely is it that they have what I would call a marginal hand? Marginal hands are ones that um, your opponent is, is going to perceive as having value. Right? They're going to think that this is a hand that has, that, like, there's a decent chance that their hand is best. And that means that their incentive is to try to get to showdown. But the hand is not so strong that they're trying to make the pot large. Like, it's not a hand that could win a big pot. It's a hand that can win, as it can beat the weaker hands in your range. So the incentive with, with those marginal hands is to try to get to showdown. And that's why they that's why they go into a different a different bucket than the monster hands, because um, you know, the, the the point of these buckets is to help me interpret my opponent's future actions. Uh, and then the the final category are going to be hands without showdown value. These are hands where uh, these are the hands that have the most incentive to bluff. Uh, this could be a hand that's just missed the flop entirely. It could also be a draw. So on a flop like. 10, 7, 4, you know, 6, 5 suited is a hand with no showdown value. Even though it's a draw, you know, it, it's not, it, it, your opponent would still be very happy to make you fold when they just have 6 high. Um, but then, like, Queen Jack would also be a hand with no showdown value on that board. Even, and that, that's not as much of a draw. Maybe, maybe the two overcards are live, depending on the situation. But... They're both hands where your opponent has some incentive to bluff. So essentially, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of how likely is it my opponent is like very strong, very weak, or somewhere in between.
And I'm considering all of those possibilities. I'm not just looking at a flop and thinking, oh, that flop smacked his calling range. Essentially what you're doing when you make a statement like that, you're assuming that your opponent is just going to have strong. You're just ignoring all the times your opponent doesn't have a strong hand. I can't bet because that flop smacks his range. I think a better way of putting that is to say, that's a flop where my opponent is relatively more likely to have strong hands. But the relatively is really important there. So if we're thinking about a player who called a raise from the big blind, you know, maybe the, the kind of flop that like smacks their range would be 10, 8, 7, 2, 10, right? Um, easy to flop a straight, easy to flop a pair, easy to flop a draw. Even so, in a tournament, especially if they've called from the big blind where there's antis, there's incentive for them to call really wide, they're still going to have a lot of hands that go in the no showdown value category. They're going to have a lot of really weak hands on that board. So to say that they have relatively more strong hands, I mean, usually the big blind is at a, a significant disadvantage relative to the preflop raiser. Um, on many boards, they're going to have strong hands almost never. So a flop that's really good for the big blind, maybe they're going to have big, uh, you know, very strong hands, monster hands. They're going to have those kinds of hands 10 times as often as they would on a different sort of board. That still doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have them super often um, because there are certain boards where it's almost impossible for the big blind to have a strong hand. So even if they have the strong hand 10 times as often, it still might not be real likely. So you do want to consider that there are other hands in your opponent's range as well, and that may drive your action. You know, when, when you're betting a 10-8-7 flop, um, you're not expecting that your opponent is going to fold a pair or a draw, but that doesn't mean they're never going to fold. The question is, how often do they have hands that are not pairs or draws? And if you have a hand that can't even beat your opponent's unpaired hands, you might still have some incentive to bet just to get those unpaired hands to fold. So that's the value of seeing all the possibilities rather than just picking one that seems most obvious to you or often just one that's most like emotionally uh, volatile for you. <laughs> you know, people uh, I think are, I, I was thinking about this with um, the WSOP overlapping with Halloween this year, which is an interesting occurrence. And um, if I were there, I was thinking it'd be funny to try to have like a, uh, a flush draw costume, right? Because that's, that's what everyone's afraid of, the WSOP. The, the flush draw is the scariest costume that you could wear. Um, yeah, I guess we probably will see people wearing costumes. I hadn't, I, it hadn't occurred to me until today um, when I was, I, I just had the thought, I was like, oh, flush draw would be a funny, funny poker Halloween costume, and I was like, oh, actually Halloween's going to be during the World Series of Poker this year. Um, so I think sometimes people, they, you know, they zoom in too much on, um, like, if there's a flush draw on the board, immediately they're like, well, you know, my opponent might have that. So there is, I mean, they're acknowledging that it's not a guarantee the opponent has the flush draw, but at the same time, they are letting the flush draw totally dictate their strategy. So they're seeing the flush draw, and they're saying, like, he might have the flush draw, I have to bet. And even though you're sort of nominally acknowledging that your opponent might have other hands, that's not reflected in your strategy. I mean, your, your strategy is essentially assuming they have a flush draw and then playing accordingly, which is a mistake. Um, you have to consider that, I mean, you have to consider they might have a flush draw and that should influence your strategy, but it shouldn't determine it. There's lots of other hands your opponent could have as well. And you also want to think about what would be the best play against all those other hands. We see the same thing, you know, if there's trips on the board. 
people immediately are sort of, oh, well, my opponent could have trips, so I have to be, uh, I, I can't bet here because he might have trips. Or, or I can't have trips and he can, so I, I can't bet here. Um, not how that works. Got to consider all the possibilities. Some of you, most of you, hopefully, know that uh, we have a Patreon now that supports this podcast and also um, is sort of its own podcast where uh, Carlos and I, um, we'll talk a little bit more about what's been going on with Nate soon. Um, Carlos and I, at the moment, are putting out, actually, the... Um, this week, uh, you're going to hear Tommy Angelo and me. That's kind of a special treat for this week. Usually it's Carlos and me um, doing 10-minute strategy segments Monday through Friday for Patreon supporters. So for as little as $5 a month, you can get those uh, strategy segments from us. That's at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Um, the reason I'm bringing that up now, in addition to just wanting to plug it, is that uh, we do a monthly call with the, the people in the top tier, um, our our inner circle of supporters. Um, we do a monthly call with them, and it's a fun, you know, intimate group. A lot of people have been there since the beginning, so there's often maybe six or seven people on the call. Um, we all kind of know each other at this point. We had one new person this this most recent month, but. Um, it's a nice little, you know, intimate, intimate gathering of, of poker minds and we can sort of, I mean, it's still pretty strategy heavy talk, but we can kind of joke around and, um, be a little more animated than uh, we are on, on the regular show. But somebody asked the question of how can you, um, how can you practice the math of poker? Like what are some exercises that you can do to get better at poker math? And I'm pretty sure what this person had in mind was like, you know, sort of crunching equities or something. Um, looking at what's my equity, you know, if I get all in versus the top 5% range when I have ace-king, what's my equity? Or what's my equity if I get all in, you know, top top 20% range with ace-king? Things, things along those lines is, I, I think, what he had in mind. And there is some value in doing that. But it actually got me thinking about, well, how can you practice this deductive logic side of things? This process of starting with lots of possibilities and then, uh, slowly and methodically narrowing those down over time with each new piece of information, deleting possibilities from your opponent's hand or shifting around possibilities, recognizing that hands become less likely, certain hands are going to become less likely every time your opponent acts. So this should always be a shrinking process. You start with uh, these big bubbles, uh, lots of different hands your opponent could have, and you can only take things out of the bubbles. You can't put them in. Right? You, you can't look at a flop and say, um, oh, the flop was uh, two, five, six. Well, what if my opponent has four, three? I mean, if you didn't think four, three was in their in their flop range you, or in their pre-flop range, you can't just, you, know, you don't want to start just worrying about it now that, um, now that a straight is, is possible on the flop. So you don't want to be introducing new hands. Um, you always, it should always be a deductive process. You're deducting, uh, deducing, eliminating possibilities um, and, and trying to narrow it down. And you're not usually going to narrow it down to one. But it's got me thinking, how can you practice doing this? And um, maybe this is just my geeky uh, <laughs> tendency. I think there's actually a fun way to do it. It's something that I used to do for fun when I was younger, and it turned out you know, Carlos and some other people on the call remembered these as well. Um, 
I used to get they used to sell these at the grocery store. I think there's just websites now where you can go and do them. Um, just books of logic puzzles. Uh, and they were specifically about deductive logic, and they, they would give you this big grid. Uh, and these puzzles would be sort of on the order of, uh, you know, five people in the neighborhood are getting their house renovated. And you have to figure out each person's first name and their house number and what kind of renovation is getting done on their house and what month of the year it's getting done in. And there's there's clues kind of on the order of like, Bob is getting his house renovated in the month after the man in house number 5501. And with that information, now you can start eliminating some possibilities. You know that Bob is not in the first month because he's after somebody. And in this grid, the, the grid is, is sort of um, intersecting like every, you know, could, could Bob be the first month of the year? Could Bob be the second month of the year? And you can put an X in the box. As, as you eliminate each possibility, you can put an X in, in the box and you sort of work back and forth over these clues and you trust that the, you know, the puzzles have been put together by people who know what they're doing. And so if you um, are, are methodical about it, you will eventually narrow it down to only one possibility. And I use, at least used to find that very satisfying as, as a kid to like work these logic puzzles and um, I would I would get them get books of them sometimes if I went to the grocery store with uh, my parents. Uh, Sudoku puzzles are another good example of this. Um, I think if you're doing easier Sudoku puzzles, you might not need to use deductive logic. But I think if you um, you can probably look up something on like how to do how to how to work harder Sudoku puzzles and practice doing that. Um, it's again deductive logic. You. Essentially, the, the process is you have to look in a given box. Um, I'm just assuming people know what a Sudoku is. I think they're they're pretty common, but you can look this up if you don't know. Um, and you want to you know write down what are the numbers that could possibly go in this box. Usually, it's one through nine could go in the box, and then um, as you can logically eliminate them um, by by looking at the puzzle and thinking about what kinds of clues you have available to you with the information that you've been given about the puzzle, you can start crossing out some of those numbers until only one remains. And then, you know, like there's no guessing and you're not supposed to do, you're not supposed to have to guess in a Sudoku puzzle or in a logic puzzle. The inf All the information you need is there to find the solution purely through deductive logic. Um, I think getting comfortable doing that, practicing doing that is a really good way of practicing the process, the skill, the mental habit that you need to be an effective hand reader in, in poker. To not go the, the, the sloppy or, or the overly hasty route of just trying to zoom right in right away on, on a single hand that you're really worried about. Um, but, but to try to consider multiple possibilities. And I think that's really one of the like fundamental meta skills of poker is being able to consider multiple possibilities at once to not just be, be really laser focused on one thing. And of course it's relevant to hand reading in the ways that I've just talked about, but it's also relevant for, for playing your own hand. You know, one thing that hamstrings a lot of people is there's options that they just don't really consider. Uh, overbetting the pot, underbetting the pot. Oftentimes, you know, raising is an option people don't really consider. 
unless they have a very specific sort of hand. Um, I think we, we sometimes see people uh, thinking of something as a call or fold decision where it's like, and, and it often is, um, but every once in a while, like raise could actually be the best play. And it's not going to be the best play often. You know, like for if you're an experienced poker player, you're probably in a lot of situations where you are playing by like habit or instinct or feel, right? This is a thing we used to talk about a lot in poker. It was like the feel players. Well, you just have a sense of, okay, this is, I just think this is what I should do with this hand in this situation. You can't always make explicit exactly why that would be the best play, but you feel pretty confident that it is the best play. Um, there's that word standard, which I kind of shudder whenever I, whenever I see or hear that. But you know, if, if you're an experienced player, you probably have some idea of what's standard in, in many situations. And if you are in fact experienced and reasonably successful, your sense of what's standard probably is going to be right like nine times out of ten so it's not a bad guide i mean you'll you'll be fairly successful just doing the standard thing the problem is if you're playing against other fairly successful experienced players they all know that same standard thing because precisely because that's what it means for it to be standard right everyone knows it so that doesn't give you an advantage that just that's just table stakes that's just getting you on par with everyone else. If you're all just making the standard plays, no one has an advantage. The player, the way to get an advantage is to be able to find that one time out of 10 when the standard play is actually not the right play. When maybe you shouldn't have checked to the preflop raiser. Maybe you shouldn't have just bet half pot. Maybe you should have actually folded when you had a set. We can all make the obvious plays. Being able to consider something that is probably wrong, but being able to give it a fair consideration and entertain the possibility that it might be right, that's how you find that last one time out of 10. And that's not exactly deductive logic, but it is that same underlying skill of being able to allow for multiple possibilities rather than just saying, well, I have to bet I have an overpair, right? You're, that's not allowing for multiple possibilities. That's not allowing for like, maybe checking is the better player. Maybe a big bet or a small bet is the better play. You know, that's just saying, I have to do this because I have such and such a hand. How many times have you heard that? I have to call, I had to call. No, you didn't, you never have to. Yeah, it's rarely correct to fold top set or fold the ace high flush draw or something. Um, everyone knows that, it, you know, people their first time playing poker know that you know the the ace high flush is a very strong hand so knowing that you're probably not going to fold that that's not a poker skill that's like the most basic thing in poker that, that there is the skill in poker the the, the way that a, a skillful player would have an advantage over someone less skilled would be to find that one time that it actually is correct to fold that hand so i think Open-mindedness, I guess, is is what it is. Um, you want to find ways to cultivate open-mindedness as a poker skill. And maybe the logic puzzles help with that. Maybe meditation helps with that. Maybe reading fiction helps with that. Uh, broadening your mind, being more 
empathetic. Um, I think there are other advantages to doing that as well. I think it can make you uh, a better person, a happier person, kinder person, person people uh, are more pleased to be around. And I think it can help you at poker as well. Last thing I want to remind you of, um, I do have a new book out in addition to the Play Optimal Poker books called Essential Poker Concepts. Um, it actually does talk uh, some about like hand reading and, and some other, uh, it's, a, it's a collection of essays that have been really core to my development as a, as a poker player. Um, some of my earlier writings on poker, but ones that I think are still relevant, that, that still reflect something fundamental about how I think about the game. Um, uh, I'm bringing this up, again, not, not only to plug it shamelessly, but because I think that a lot of these essays uh, do, there's some resonance with things I've been talking about today, how I've been encouraging you to think about things over the course of this episode. Um, if you found this amusing, entertaining, enlightening, uh, I think that you will like that collection as well. Paperback is available only at Amazon. Uh, the eBooks you can get from Thinking Poker, or no, from uh, Nickcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com, uh, or from Amazon. And lots of other stuff available in that Nickcast store as well. So if you're starting to think about uh, holiday shopping, uh, no supply chain problems for digital products got uh, videos on there, um, the Weekend Warrior videos, the Exploiting Small Stakes Tournaments videos that uh, I did with Carlos. Those are, um, those are great. Books, Play Optimal Poker, Play Optimal Poker 2, Essential Poker Concepts. Um, oh, you know, I, I said videos for Weekend Warrior. Those are actually podcasts, but the um, Exploiting Small Stakes Tournaments is actually a, a strategy video. So nickcast.com to find those things, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily to get the daily strategy segments. Thank you all for listening.